0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Maine Crisp, gluten-free fruit and nutcrackers made with simple and natural ingredients. Learn more at mainecrisp.com. Hello, this is Dana Cowan and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week I interview an extraordinary human who inspires me with their life and their work. Today, I have a very special guest, someone who I've admired both from afar and gotten to know a little bit. Her name is Liz Newmark. I think that most people probably know you as the founder of Great Performances, which is a catering company that is considered among the best in the entire country. When you started Great Performances, you were such a trailblazer. It was taking me back that you started in the 80s doing a service where you you provided a waitress So women to serve at events, and at the time you really wanted to be a photographer, as far as I can tell. What what was it like? Like, can you bring me back to the '80s? Like, I lived it, but not everybody (laughs) who's listening was there as I was.
2: It was not a time. For women in the hospitality world,
1: you know, catering was just an emerging industry. Well, to what do you attribute that? Like, why was it that it was all restaurants and no catering? Because today, the, the catering events business is gigantic.
2: You know, I think it was hotels. It was catering in people's homes. And that's where the beginning of our jobs were. You know, It's funny. Our uniform was um, <laughs> a scoop neck, long sleeve, black leotard with a black skirt a white scalloped apron, and we wore Ben Amun, who was a costume jewelry designer, designed a triple strand pearl choker with a black bugle bead bow, and and that's that's what we wore. The, the whole image of a of a woman in service was was so traditional. There was no pants. There was no jackets. There was there was nothing that that we so take for granted today. Our motto was. Who knows more about the art of service than a woman in the arts? And and it was it was unique. I mean, Florence Fabricant wrote us up within four or five months of launching. And I, and I will say there was um, a remarkable woman. I was I was working part time in her jewelry store on Madison Avenue, Laura Krueger, and uh, she gave us her mailing list, which was amazing. And we sent out this. Thing about uh, great performances, artists as waitresses. And Florence got that and a whole bunch of women on the Upper East Side who were just starting to hire for their homes
1: as, as women started to go back to the workplace. And uh, it sort of caught on. The reason that there were jobs for you is that people started entertaining at home, which they really kind of hadn't been. you know. And I, and I, and I guess what you're saying is it was women, more women in the workplace that actually meant that they weren't the ones doing the serving themselves. And of course you morphed, I don't remember how quickly you morphed from just you know providing the service to actually the food as well, because obviously that is the direction in, in which you grew. We built our first kitchen in 82. So it was like a little, a long
2: year till we figured it out. I was like fresh out of college. Liz, have you had one job your whole career? I had one job beforehand that I got fired from. Ooh, where'd you get fired from? And this was literally the day after I graduated. I went to an employment agency and they hired me to be a temp counselor for their temporary division. And two things happened. One is that gave me the model in my head for a temporary service, which I translated to waiters, waitresses, servers. And the second thing is, I guess I, you know, I I talked back to the boss and I got fired. Um,
1: Um, which was great. You know, thank goodness that happened because that's what spurred me to, like, go follow my dream. But you couldn't have had the dream. Like, your. I guess your dream actually was to be a documentary photographer. It was to be Annie Leibovitz, yeah. Is there any intersection between sort of the Annie and the documentary photography dream that you had and what you ended up pursuing? Like, is there something where these two worlds come together?
2: Yes, because a... On a certain level, just being surrounded by other creative people is part of it. The second thing is my my kids, who came a, a bit later, were the most photographed children on the face of the world. And then, we, you know, ultimately, when I did my cookbook, I took the pictures myself. For years, I took the photos that we used internally. Um, I like to think that the food industry just has so many creative corners and. The same creativity that you bring to an art form or whatever it is, just just sort of infuses. You don't know where something starts and stops. I did not become the documentary, any Leibovitz knockoff that I that I wanted to, but I think. We have provided a home and income and support to hopefully hundreds of people who have gone on to accomplish what they wanted in the arts.
1: I'd love to just have you tell the story about how you grew from it, providing the, the servers to just doing everything.
2: So what happened? First of all, the, the, the first change was we integrated and brought in boys because we started, it was it was only women. And one day, a, a hysterical hostess calls me, uh, you know, lose my bartender's here. I said, that's great. Uh, I think her name was June. She should be there. She's our best person. She, and she's just is sputtering. Uh, but, 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 uh, it's a woman. What will my guests say?
1: And um, I said, your guests will say, can I have a gin and tonic? Did you continue the path of working primarily within the arts community to find your talent, whatever the talent was?
2: What's happened probably in the last 15 plus years is that hospitality is now not a, a default career. You know, when we were all coming up, nobody went to culinary school. Maybe in the hotel world, they went to hospitality school. But everybody in, in catering and in our sort of rogue side of the business, you know, so, sort of self-taught. You came through a back door. You washed dishes. You were a waiter. You, you know, you, you, you did something on the operation side and, and then you sort of worked your way up. And And maybe for that reason, for so long our segment of the industry just never got respect never got respect from a culinary perspective or from a service perspective we were just always the 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 sort of outliers in the hospitality industry and that has changed no question about it
1: it's interesting you say that i'm thinking of covid and i'm thinking about like how we've we've tried within the restaurant industry to organize. And there is a sense of, you know, we're a group and we're in it together and we're referred to with the restaurant industry as an industry. You know, there's a lot of numbers, there's a lot of attention paid because there's a lot of famous, well-known chefs who policymakers pay attention to. And I'm wondering whether what you're talking about with catering, if you had any feeling about the way catering was treated during COVID, because I've heard some caterers say, you know, um, we're sort of like, the lost industry even though we're actually quite gigantic right uh,
2: and and that is really true I think that's what happened because with all the focus on stimulus help and financial help to the different parts of the hospitality industry the most visible one uh, was restaurants everybody galvanized everybody wanted to support a restaurant nobody in, in our own company we're probably, from a hiring perspective, the equivalent of several dozen restaurants. I mean, we we had over at eight nine hundred men and women on our on call service staff, the you know our waiters, and nobody was thinking of them. Our industry was decimated. It's like the lights went off. I mean, fortunately, we were able to pivot, which we do professionally even pre COVID, but um, nobody ever said, well, what about the caterers? Because we're just we we are invisible.
1: We are invisible. I wonder how or if that's important to change. I
2: think it is important. I think it's important to think about the broadest part of the industry and how we can become coalition partners. Because there are things that we can do that restaurants can't. One of the things we're doing now, for example, is we serve uh, workplace dining clients And one of the things our clients want to do is once a week, they want to have meals from a restaurant. So we are the intermediary. We are finding restaurant partners and literally doing whatever we can to help them put together anywhere from three to 800 lunches on a given day and get them to our clients. There's almost no restaurant who can take it on themselves. We are a great partner. And, and every day, uh, our good friend Georgette Farkas, who's our culinary ambassador, she's on our staff now, is reaching out to entrepreneurs to say, can we feature you in a restaurant day? So that's just one little example of how we can partner. Or if the city is envisioning, what do we do the next emergency? How can we help restaurants? Well, you know, partner 10 restaurants with a company like Great Performances and we can help expedite things because we deal in large volume. We deal in uncertainty and changing logistics and food is always going on a truck and we're used to it. So, you know, we, we are a fabulous resource and no one really thinks about us like that until an emergency comes along.
1: As, as long as we're talking about the things that you did during COVID, I'd I'd love to hear some of the pivot that you made. One of the things that has always impressed me about you as a leader and as a visionary is that you're always trying new things. I guess we'll work backwards to some of the other things you added to your business, but during COVID, I'm particularly interested in the way that you were feeding the elderly and keeping your people employed and what that was like.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I'll take a step back just and I will talk about that. But also post 9-11 was almost like a parallel when the city shut down. Everybody froze. Red Cross came to town. We were the only food company that answered the phone on a Sunday night. And they needed thousands of meals, like within 36 hours. And we did it. And a restaurant can't do that. How did you pull that off? Because, you know, in our life, it's making the impossible possible. That's, that's just part of, if you can't do it, you're in the wrong business or the wrong part of the business. Uh, so we're dealing with suppliers and we have crazy truck drivers. You can't go south of 14th Street. And and I think one of our guys got through the barrier on the back of an H&H bagel truck and made friends with the policeman. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, that's just part of what we do.
1: In, in 9-11, um, who are you feeding?
2: We we almost instantly ramped up to do thirty five thousand meals a day at the Family Assistance
1: Center at the Piers. Oh my goodness! Um, How extraordinary! And how extraordinary for your team! What's the effect on them in helping an emergency like that or like COVID? It's it's powerful.
2: You know, I think we feel that we are just part of the fiber of New York City. You know, when, when, and, and, and on the happy side, when the Yankees are having their ticker tape parade and there's a party in City Hall, we're doing the food there, too. So we get to do the joyful moments. You know, we, we, we always feel that we want to step up, that we want to serve, that that's our obligation, that we can do it. And, and I will tell you, in, in, in hindsight, 35,000 meals congregant feeding style is a walk in the park compared to 35,000 meals individually boxed and then delivered by hand door to door. So 9/11 was easy. It was easy. You know, you put 35,000 meals on the truck, one truck went and dropped it off and it got served. You know, pre-COVID, like as as the curtain was falling on the city, we were at a meeting down at City Hall. And the city was gearing up to move all the congregants' senior meals into individual homes and shut down the centers. And the word no just doesn't exist in our vocabulary. And they talked about who could step up and take on thousands of meals. And we said we could because we figured, well, we've got hundreds of staff people. Who will be looking for work. This is what we do, no problem. We have a special events team. We have incredibly resilient and creative chefs. And I mean, the whole team, you know, the idea of shutting down the kitchen was just scary. That was scarier than staying open. And, um, and, and we just figured it out. And Dana, you know, I had no idea when we said, no problem, we can deliver 13,000 meals to individual homes. I didn't know. It's a good thing ignorance is bliss. And then that weekend, it's like the IT guy and the and the ops team, they just figured out how you do it because it's actually, duh, quite complicated.
1: Yeah. It seems like the delivery piece of it, just understanding how dearly everyone pays for delivery because it's a logistics nightmare. Um, and then to, to volunteer to do that sort of on a dime seems... Fantastic. You accomplished it. But like, oh, yeah, that that might be hard.
2: Or, or, or really, really dumb, because within 30 seconds also, you could get another 600 bucks on your unemployment if you stayed home. And what really has created a lasting impression on me, and I will never, ever forget it, is being in the kitchen in our warehouse where these meals were assembled by teams of dozens and dozens of people and then men and women who are on the street every day, summer downpours, 100 degree days, going and knocking on doors going into public housing, walking up flights of stairs during a pandemic. and I would say why tell me tell me why you're here and some people needed the paycheck and almost everyone said because I want to help
1: that makes me weepy. It, it, it was amazing. I'm curious whether when we talk about uh, COVID and isolation and the elderly and food, there's also the question of just having no one to talk to. I mean, did your teams end up, you know, having conversations and being the one point of contact for someone in a week or did it not actually work that way?
2: Well, you know, there were very strict rules from from the city about engagement because we didn't want to kill anybody. But, you know, it was interesting because in decades of serving people and, and delivering meals, this was probably the greatest feeling of gratitude that our servers and our staff got from someone they delivered a meal to. So to your point, the isolation, I think, was very hard on some of the people, and they were so... Grateful. Yes, we there were restrictions in terms of leave it at the door, don't engage, whatever. But but there was contact. There was human contact. Probably for some people, it was as important as food.
1: I know that you're involved in one way or another in organizations that work with the city government and perhaps state. But I'm wondering like, what is giving you hope about the way that the city is addressing. Um, certainly one in five kids. I don't know if it's one in five adults who experiences hunger sometime during a week, during a month?
2: I'm definitely not an expert in that field. I do know that the city put together a 10-year food plan to think about resiliency and where food is going to come from. There's been talk about creating stockpiles. Uh, The city is thinking about Hunts Point. Hunts Point in New York feeds the eastern seaboard. And during Sandy, Hunts Point was at risk. So I think the role of food... Has never really been thought of the way we think about power or other resources. Just what's beginning to emerge is a more integrated thought, thinking about how to support pantries, farms, local agriculture, our our upstate downstate connection, which is something the city and state should work on together. I think there are Good steps being taken to to look at this system the infrastructure and the relationships and figure out how to strengthen them
1: that is an optimist point of view you know it's 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 really hard to move the needle on these and the and the numbers are always so large right when it's a gigantic problem you have to solve everyone sort of pitches in and when it's just the day-to-day oh like one in five, You know, people in the city don't have food. The urgency sort of goes away, but the problem is still there.
2: And, you know, it was so interesting because everybody wanted to feed hospital workers. It was the sexiest thing in the world. And then when that went away as an issue feeding hungry people is not very sexy or hungry elderly. I mean, we both know city meals and the work that they do. And it's like pulling teeth to try to, to, to think about taking care of vulnerable people. I really have such deep respect for organizations that focus on those populations mostly in need and, and, and juxtaposed to everybody focusing on restaurants and and, and chefs and, and, and this more glamorous attractive and engaging vision of food. And no question, it's part of this industry that's a backbone of our city and supports thousands and thousands of workers and low-wage workers uh, and people who keep our city going. But we don't have an agreement on the role of food in our culture. There's us who think about which cuisine do we want tonight? And if anything, if we skipped a few meals, that would probably be a good thing. Versus people who have real healthy food access issues. It's crazy. Nobody thinks about food as medicine. Food is preventive medicine. And, and, and COVID really, really drove home the disparities between what people are eating and health outcomes.
1: One of the things that you mentioned that I want to drill down a little bit on is healthy eating and nutrition, because you set up the Sylvia Center um, in order to provide greater education around like, topics in food.
2: Yes. Yeah. No, and I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to talk about the Sylvia Center, which we started in '06. And very simply, we teach kids how to cook. Why? Because if you are on a limited income and you don't know how to prepare food, your next option is cheap food, which could be the bucket of fried chicken. It could be the fast burger. It could be something else that's really, really cheap is really bad for your health. So when we talk about Sylvia Center, we could talk about it as a a cooking program, but we can also talk about it as a health initiative, which is really geared towards our kids in underserved communities, communities at risk for diet-related diseases. And it just changes the trajectory because kids, they learn by, by doing. It's not every kid who's interested, not every child, not every youth, but the ones who come into the kitchen are absolutely seduced by the ingredients, by the sense of community, by the creativity, by the results, uh, and by the engagement. And many of them come out of, of you know our classes. And they start cooking with their families or for their families. We've had kids go on to careers in food. But it really changes their relationship to food, their shopping habits, their home habits. And invariably, I hear from so many of kids, there's someone close to them who has been in the hospital with with diabetes with heart disease obesity everything that's diet-related. and they sort of see it and this is a way out this is this is a way to, to change the outcome and the narrative
1: this episode is brought to you by Maine Crisp gluten-free fruit and nutcrackers made with simple natural ingredients It all began with buckwheat. I am obsessed with buckwheat because my husband, Barkley, is now gluten-free. But buckwheat is the way to go. The company's founders, Karen and Steve Goetz, added nuts and seeds and dried fruits and baked them into this incredibly delicious, easy-to-enjoy crisp. Their friends loved them. Their family loved them. Everyone craved them. Why? Because they've got this unexpected flavor and chewy Meets crispy texture. They're a family-owned and operated business, and they work with their local community and farmers to celebrate everything that has to do with Maine. And as you guys all know, I'm obsessed with Maine. So when they're thinking about what to make with these crisps, it's their tartary buckwheat with pure maple syrup. They were thinking about health and flavor that they wanted everyone to share and enjoy. Because snack time is your time, you got to check out these crisps. Learn more at maincrisp.com. I want to hear about Mott Haven uh, in the Bronx, which is where your, your kitchen is right now.
2: Our kitchen, our office, our, our, our whole facility, uh, and it is off the island of Manhattan. It's really a very different landscape. It's been eye-opening.
1: Hey, what have the benefits been to being there?
2: Well, we found a lot of space. We doubled our footprint. There's just no place in Manhattan for, for a, uh, a production or manufacturing business. So there, there was no choice. And um, it's just different. Where, where we are in Haven, there's a lot of construction going on. The South Bronx has this image in, in, in our memories of uh, the Bronx is burning. You know, the city is, is very disinvested. In, in this neighborhood, uh, you know what struck me when I first got there I was walking from the subway to the office, several blocks, and not passing a garbage can, not, not passing a mailbox, and literally two miles away in Manhattan, it's it's just a totally different landscape. So, so just looking at the city as as a larger whole, because Manhattan is so bigger than life and it's its own universe. But really, thinking that we need to really see our city as bigger than this single island, and and knowing who the essential workers are, who delivered all the food from the local restaurants, you know, who was working in the stores and the drugstores and the supermarkets, who who kept the trains running, and and these are our neighbors in the in the outer boroughs. So, you know, my sense of New York has has just evolved, and 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 I'm grateful for it. And I feel like a little bit of an idiot for for having been so narrow in in my focus. Um, but you know how New Yorkers are. You know, if you're below 14th Street, you know go never go north of 14th Street. If you're if you're in in Mott Haven, you never go to to Harlem. I, you know, they, I mean, we, we're we're so limited in in our scope.
1: And I I was going to ask if you are able to be part of that community in either hiring or learning from or creating programs. So, yeah, I mean, and
2: there's a range. Uh, you know, I've joined the board of the um, the Bronx Chamber of Commerce and I sit on the legislative committee and that is really interesting because Bronx politics is like totally different. There's so many incredible nonprofits there. I, I have fallen in love with the the Bronx River conservancy they're, they're restoring the Bronx River and, and, and bringing green and experience with the water to, to the South Bronx community. Or the Thank You Beta, which works with kids in high school and providing them with different experiences that prepare them for higher education, more job opportunities. I mean, it's, it's endless. It's endless. Uh, we had a great local graffiti artist do a hundred-something-foot wall when you get off the elevator in our new office. So there's, there's a lot of um, creativity and resilience and, and, and need. And we are hiring, we're trying to hire local uh, hostos colleges right up the road from us. They've been a terrific neighbor and we're trying to engage more. And, and given this crazy labor shortage, how can we provide mentoring and perhaps training and bringing new people into, into our sphere and, and into our universe? The
1: more of the community that we can get together and support one another, the better off we all are. So I'd love to just go back to catering and food for a minute. What are you finding the most interesting right now, just in terms of catering and opportunities and feeding lots of people in exciting ways, which you specialize in?
2: There's tremendous interest in where my food is from, seasonality, and this is, this is the moment for seasonality. And food is, is entertainment, food is theater people are talking about small plates and a variety of flavors and they want to know how things are built they want to be
1: entertained so what are you, what are you seeing in terms of cuisines that people are interested in because one of my pet theories of the moment is that we're just getting more and more authentic and deeper and deeper and farther out into real food from you know not the popular travel destinations but I always like to gut check that with people who are feeding a lot of people rather than me because I I'm at the far side of adventure like I'll go anywhere for food
2: the client we're dealing with has to please a lot of people so we start out maybe a little bit far out and then it comes back to pretty mainstream so we might talk about, different kinds of fish and sustainability in fish is, is a big topic. And if our clients aren't interested, it doesn't matter because we care. So, but invariably, you know, what, what does it come down? It comes back to branzino and salmon. So we've really tried to, to talk about by, by catch and, and, you know, all different types of fish and not really, that's not going to go over well. So there's, there, there are things that our clients are asking for, and there are things that we believe in we need to bring them along and make them a little bit more aware of. So for the last three, four years, we have been shrinking the size of the animal protein on a plate because, honestly, who needs eight ounces of, of beef, especially at 8 o'clock at night? And I'm not making food choices for Customers. If somebody wants 24 ounces and they're gonna pay for it and this is what they want, you know, but we, we're not here to judge. But but we do have a role of having conversations and presenting options and, and talking about, well, let's do a little more variety of maybe some grains or interesting flavors and vegetables on the side to fill the plate. I think a, a, a very slow trend is people thinking about the impacts of agriculture and livestock on climate change and and that'll be big and that'll that'll
1: that'll really be a wonderful
2: thing when that happens
1: you'll be a part of helping make it happen i'm sure it's you know very hard to think how will that change come about when people really like to to do and to eat what they already know
2: right so the the, the change is coming from the next generation
1: right who are far more ad- adventurous and militant you know in a good way what i would perceive to be a good
2: way and it's so interesting because every time we get with a group and and many of them are very forward thinking groups politically and socially and we talk about let's just do it it, it seems like the right thing for you is to do a plant-based meal and they go yeah it really is and we start working on the menu we do a tasting and nine times out of ten they end up with an animal protein because they're not ready to take the leap because because the men are going to want it or because if I'm getting $1,000 a ticket or $2,000, don't you want and And that is such outdated
1: thinking. I think one of the struggles with the Plant Forward meal is, well, what's the main course? I don't want to have a bunch of, like, fiddly things. I want to have the main. You know, you don't want it to be pasta because that looks cheap or it's too many carbs or, you know, like there's a lot of education to be done around what the options um, could be
2: and creativity because I, I, I don't eat animal protein i mean i do eat fish um and selectively but it's it, it's it's really a challenge for chefs and and we see those who can really do it well and those who can't to to take that challenge and to give you something that it doesn't feel like you know, you're somehow getting gypped. I, I know so many times I'm at a dinner, maybe it's a, 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 let's say at a at a venue where I'm both a guest and behind the food and the chef knows that I don't eat meat and I get a gorgeous plate and everybody at the table looks at me and they say,
1: I want to have what she's having. Yes, I mean, I always feel like that somehow I feel safer and better ordering or, you know, putting a request in for vegetarian, even though... At, at a big meal, even though I'm not a vegetarian, I just, I'd rather have a plate filled with vegetables than a plate filled with a meat chosen by the, the person who's throwing the event. I have a question I wanted to ask you about age, because we're the same age-ish. And, like, how do you think about age, ambition, and how you spend your time? So I,
2: my husband, retired last year. It's really interesting living with someone who does not have to get up early in the morning and go to work. And in fact, I don't know if I told you the story. I had no idea he had retired. It was COVID, and two of our kids were quarantining with us. And so people were home, and I just didn't realize what happened. And I'm with my dad, and he says, "I, you know, Fayam told me that he finished his career. And I'm thinking, huh? I go home, and I say to my husband— Dad told me you finished your career. What What did he mean? <laughs> he said he retired. I said, well, "What are you going to tell me?" And he said he was afraid. <laughs> but but he he finished it. He was done. He was in the legal profession. It was enough. He didn't love it. I love what I do. I love what I do because it's a gateway into thinking about our culture, our society, hopefully having an impact on making our city more equitable. There are so many things that I really feel passionate about that have nothing to do with what the latest food trend is. It's just about life and and social justice. And for me to be involved in, in, in social justice, using Food as our lens and, and our base for engagement and activism is, is very fulfilling because, you know, as an urban studies political science major, and at the end of the day, I still want to make the world a little better place. There's so much we can do with food through food, with food communities who, who see this as a powerful tool. And, and I work with a lot of young people, so I must be, by default, a young person.
1: You've defied biological age by just being incredibly excited and engaged in what you're doing. I love that. Well, that leads me to my um, the last question of my podcast, which is, is there a person who you would love to give a shout-out broadly, a woman who you think uh, more people need to know about, for
2: the work that they do. So Marcy Bloom is one of the most creative and, and talk about forever vibrant and, and reinventing and tough and resilient and hardworking. Uh, she's an event planner known for doing incredible weddings, but we started working together in the 80s on some corporate events and we've just stayed really, really close over the years. And she has a culinary background. I think she's a CIA grad. She was in the restaurant industry, been involved in you know, sort of the periphery of the political world as well over, over time. And she makes me feel exhausted. You know, when, when we go out for dinner, I say, Marcy, please, could we please meet at 6.30? Cause she's ready to go at nine o'clock and then stay up for all hours. And I, I can't, you know, by 10 o'clock I need to be in bed. Uh, and, and, and Marcy's just so smart, so inventive. So I, I, I think about someone who's really inspired me and it's Marcy.
1: I love that. Thank you. Um, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you on the pod. Um, thanks all of you for listening. I hope you enjoyed uh, it as much as I did and, um, I'll be back again next week. Thank you, Liz. And I can't wait to see you in real life. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage_radio. radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork.